Well, go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, that's where we're going to be our time uh, this morning. Last week, Pastor Mike preached uh, on uh, why Christmas, that Jesus came to save sinners. And he talked about how we, we tend to focus in on a time with family and uh, the food and the gifts and, and so many traditions that surround Christmas. But, but so often we lose sight of the reason why Jesus came. And that was to save sinners. And so this week we're going to continue with that question of why Christmas. And for those of you who uh, really try to squeeze every last day out of your Christmas decorations to be able to enjoy the Christmas season as long as humanly possible, uh, you probably are really excited that, this, that today we're still talking about Christmas. Uh, so uh, today's sermon is why Christmas the supremacy of Christ. Because even though Christmas is over, it's still really necessary that we keep in the forefront of our mind why we celebrate Christmas in the first place. Because we tend to look at Christmas and we see Jesus in the manger scene and in everyone's nativities and in all the songs we sing about Jesus being a baby. But with Christmas now in the rearview mirror, Jesus isn't still a baby. And in fact, just a few days ago on Christmas Day, he was not a baby. He is the ruling, reigning king of all. Truthfully, Jesus was only here on this earth for about 32, 33 years. And so for us to celebrate him as a baby is really to miss the whole point of Christmas. So yes, we do recognize that Jesus came to earth and was born as a baby to a virgin. But then he grew up. He lived a life here on earth. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He returned to heaven where he is currently seated on the throne. And so we have to keep in mind the importance of seeing Christ as he is, not just as he was 2,000 years ago. You see, because when we see Christ as he is, it does two things. First of all, it protects us from heresy, right? It, it, it makes sure that we have right belief. It, makes, it helps us to make sure that we don't go down a road of wrong belief about Jesus, but then the second thing that it does is it helps us to worship because we understand who Jesus is and so we worship him rightly. To, to put that in a more broad term, we live rightly. Right? So understanding Jesus as he is helps us to maintain right belief and right living. So this morning we're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 uh, through 23. And I'm going to go ahead and read through those, and then we'll walk through them together. Paul begins in verse 15 saying, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I'd like to pray uh, for our time, and then, and then we will walk through the passage. So please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now just so grateful for who you are. Lord, we confess that we uh, should not think of you merely as a child long, long ago, but we need to maintain right belief in who you are. And where you are, Lord, you are the supreme king of all. And so as we walk through this passage, Lord, please please lead my words that I would be speaking only your words, God. That I would only be saying that which you would want me to say. And those who hear would hear your very words with the power that only you can give and the clarity that only you can grant and the understanding that only your spirit can give us. And Lord God, as, as uh, so many churches around town right now are closed, Lord, which, which honestly breaks my heart, God, that we would have to close churches because of the weather. Lord, it, it's the reality of this morning. And you know, God, you understand. And so I just pray that right now you would, be, you would be keeping people safe, that those who are still going to churches across town, that they would be kept safe. And that for those churches that are not meeting this morning, uh, that you would still be very, very clearly near to the people who are staying home this morning. Lord, we thank you that your church is not merely found in a building. Your church is found all over the earth. And so be glorified in your church this morning, no matter where we may be. Amen. So, this morning, why Christmas, the supremacy of Christ, there are two major points that we're going to talk about, each one having a few sub-points with them. The first major point that we see is we see Christ's supremacy over all things, verses 15 through 20. Specifically, in verse 15, we see that Jesus is supreme over all eternity. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. Now that word image there, the the Greek word for that word image is the word icon, which oddly enough is where we get our English word icon from. But what it points us to is it, it, doesn't, just, it doesn't just suggest a picture or, or kind of a, a general vague notion. Instead, the word icon that's translated image in this passage means that, that it is a perfect imprint. It is an exact representation to the point of being that very thing. It goes well beyond just a, just a picture. You see, the author of Hebrews kind of flushes this out a bit more in Hebrews chapter 1 when he says that Jesus is the perfect imprint of God's nature. And in, in the book of John, in the very first chapter, John says, no one has ever seen God But Jesus, he goes on to say, Jesus has made God known to us because he was God in the flesh. See, a lot of times people people say, well, I wonder what God is like. Well, just look at Jesus because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know how God loves Look at how Jesus loves, and you'll know how God loves. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and an exact representation of his nature. You want to know how, how Jesus or how God is with, with the broken, with the suffering, with the needy? Look at how Jesus is with the broken and the suffering and the needy. And, and you'll know how God is. You want to know what what God cares about? Look at what Jesus cares about, and you'll know what God cares about. See, Jesus is the image of the invisible God because he is the perfect imprint of God in man's flesh. He's not just a second-rate representation of God. Paul goes on to, to... flesh out this point even more where he says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now it can be easy to hear that word firstborn and think created. Firstborn of all creation, that that means that Jesus must have been the first thing that God made. But that's not true. Okay? That's not true. It's not what it means. See, this, this idea of firstborn, it, it, it's used over a hundred times throughout the scriptures in, in both the New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This, this word for firstborn. And the vast majority of the times that it is used, it is used to denote rank, not literal birth order. That's important. That's very important for us to understand. That yes, yes, the word for firstborn does does mean in some instances the one who was born first in the most literal physical sense. But if if we really look at it, it's only used in that sense a handful of times in the scriptures. But, But it more often denotes rank or authority 
You see, this, this word here, firstborn of all creation, Paul is using it to say Jesus is over all creation. Jesus is in authority over creation. Jesus is before all creation. See, this verse has been misused by a lot of people throughout the history of the church to teach the false doctrine that Jesus was created by God. This is the verse that Jehovah's Witnesses turn to to say that Jesus is a lesser God than God the Father. That's just wrong. And the scriptures don't teach that. In fact, the scriptures very much teach that Jesus never had a beginning, that he is eternal, that he was not created. John said in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he specifically uses those words in the beginning to take us back to Genesis 1.1 to say, hey, before anything was created, Jesus was there and Jesus was God. And Paul is putting both of these together, this image of the invisible God and the firstborn of creation to make the case, hey, everybody, listen up. Jesus is God. He's not a lesser God. He's not just a representation of God. He's not just a picture of God. Jesus himself is God and is supreme over eternity. Now, it's very possible that you hear that and you go, wait, I thought, I thought God was God and Jesus was God's son. Now you're saying that Jesus is God? I'm confused. Okay, well, that is, if you're not familiar with that idea, that, that is the doctrine of the Trinity. That God exists as one God in three persons as revealed throughout Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Not three gods, not one God appearing in different forms at different times, but simultaneously and eternally, one God in three persons. Don't worry. If it's a little confusing for you, you're in good company. But, but this is one of the reasons why I tell people that I am confident in the God of the Bible being the one true God because I cannot fully understand him. Because at the moment where I can, can fully understand and fully explain the way that God, the eternal, omnipotent, infinite God of the universe, at the point where I am able to explain how he exists, he is no longer God. Because my very small, very finite, very limited brain can understand him. But if, if the way that God has revealed himself to me through his word, revealed himself to you and I and everyone else through his word is sometimes a bit difficult to wrap our brains around. I'm okay with that. God has revealed himself as existing in three persons while still being one God. God's word says it. I believe it. So Jesus is supreme over eternity. He is God. He is the ruling, reigning God. But you have to ask yourself this question. You have to ask yourself, 
Is this how I view Jesus? Is Jesus God in my eyes? Or is he just a guy that made it possible for me to be forgiven of my sins? Because if I reduce Jesus down to to not being God, to not being one of the members of the triune Godhead, if I reduce him down to being the guy who died for my sins, then I will not rightly put him in the place that he belongs in my life. I will instead reduce him to the baby in the manger and the suffering, dying man on the cross. And while, yes, both of those things are true, that is not all there is about Jesus. You see, if if I see Jesus as supreme over all eternity, if I see him as God who came to earth as a man, then it will influence how I respond to his commands, right? So Christ's supremacy over all things, we first saw that, that he's supreme over eternity. Secondly, we see that he is supreme over the first creation. The first creation, what? Was there a second creation that we didn't know about? First creation, meaning when God made everything in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, that's the first creation. And yes, there is another creation that we will talk about here in just a few minutes. But he is supreme over the first creation. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created... In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. See, Jesus is the creator of all creation. We look back at Genesis 1-1 and we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we, we think about God the Father, right? And that's, that's accurate. That's true. But remember, God exists three persons in one God. That means that all three persons of the Trinity were present at the time of creation, Jesus included. See, and Paul specifically says that it was by Jesus himself that all things were created. See, this is one of those ways that we have to, we have to amplify our image of Jesus in our minds. That he is not just the baby in the manger or the man on the cross. Jesus is the God who is there at the very beginning of time, who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. He's the creator of all creation. All things throughout the universe, out in space, here on earth, the things that we can't see, everything down to the molecular level, all all the different things that go on, the forces of physics that we can't see and can't touch, but we see that they're there. Jesus made all of those. Even, Even the structures of the world the notion of authority and government. Paul says, Jesus made all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers 
or authorities. There are times that we may not like who gets elected to office, but yet Jesus is sovereign over that. Jesus has been sovereign over every ruler that has ever been appointed to a position because he is the one who established authority in the first place. You see, when I, when I look at the world and I understand that Jesus is the one who created it, then I should be more willing, more ready, and I should desire more to engage those things in the way that Jesus would want me to engage them. There are certain things that we look at and say that we don't like them. but does it lead me to a place to say, how would Jesus want me to engage that? Because Jesus is the creator of all things. No, Jesus is not the, the, the creator of things that are bad, but yet he is sovereign over all that happens. Therefore, even those things that are sinful, even those things that are wrong, that are against the will of God, that God is not responsible for, he is still sovereign over I need to make sure that I am responding to them and engaging them in a way that honors God. Next, what we see is that Jesus, Jesus is the point of creation. He's the point of creation. Look at the, the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. See, Paul, Paul kind of completes this image. All things were created by him, but they were also created through him and for him. He is, he is painting this picture of Jesus is, is the originator. He is the point as well. Not only did he make everything, he also is the reason everything was made. And when we start to dive into this idea, it is so incredibly liberating for us as broken sinners. And here's why. If you and I were the point of creation, that is so disappointing. Because you and I cannot even go a day without failing. I can hardly get out of my bed in the morning without sinning between the time that my eyes opened and my feet hit the floor. And forget about the rest of the day. And I'm sure, I'm sure that you could feel the same way. And so if I can't even go a day without failing, if I were the point of creation, what what a disappointment that would be for the rest of creation, right? And besides, if you and I were the point of creation, that would mean that, that God created the heavens and the earth, A, for us, and B, because he was somehow lacking. And he needed us to fulfill a need. Well, if that's the case, he's not God anymore, right? Okay, so if instead Jesus, God the Son, right, if, 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 if Jesus is the point of creation, I can get with that. 
I can be okay with that because that means that everything that exists exists to point me back to him, to, to point me back to giving him glory, giving him praise, giving him honor. Jesus gave us a window into this in Luke when, when he was entering into Jerusalem. You remember that during the triumphal entry? And, and he's entering into Jerusalem. And all the people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the Pharisees say, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus' response to them was, I tell you, if they are silent, the very rocks will cry out. Why? Because creation exists to praise the name of Jesus. Jesus is the point of all that was made. He's the creator of all creation. He's the point of all creation. And he's the sustainer of all creation. Verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That word before can have two meanings. It can, it can mean both in a, in a temporal sense, time, right? Before but it can also mean authority, preeminence, being over everything. And most commentators, uh, and, and, and I also agree, that, that this seems to carry both of those meanings simultaneously. Jesus existed before anything was created, but Jesus is also over everything that was created. But Paul takes that one step further And he says, and in him all things hold together. You want to know why? You can pick up a rock and drop it, and every single time you do it, it will hit the ground. Because Jesus made gravity. And he is the one who ensures that it is always working the way he made it. Jesus holds the very laws of physics together. Those, those forces that are what make the universe work the way it does, Jesus made them and he makes them work in perfect unity so that everything remains the same. <laughs> you, you know, the earth is, is at a perfect tilt in its orbit around the sun, where if it were to move one degree in either direction, life could not exist on our planet. And yet, Jesus is the one who perfectly sustains everything needed for life to exist on our planet. It's because of Jesus. You know why there's snow outside right now? There is snow on the ground right now because there was precipitation from the clouds and the temperature dropped below freezing. Because Jesus is the one who made it work that way. And so every time that happens, there will be snow on the ground. Because Jesus is the one who holds all things together. You know why we can, we, you know why the scientific method works? Making observations and drawing a, a hypothesis and doing an experiment and drawing a conclusion from that and that we can repeat things that are scientific fact. We can repeat them over and over and over and over and over again. It's because Jesus made it that way. 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus made science. And so anything that is proven to be scientific fact, note I said scientific fact, right? Anything that can be proven will point us to God. It will point us to Jesus because he's the one who made it in the first place. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the handiwork of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that that what can be known about God can be clearly perceived that we can look out and see that God exists just by what we see and what we observe. See, I love, I love going out into nature. It's, it is one of my absolute favorite things to do, whether it's alone or with my family, going out into the woods, even just going 20 minutes outside of town. It's not nearly as pretty as the forest, but it's still out in the way that things were made to be. And what I love about it is whether I'm in the woods or whether I'm out in the desert, whether I'm sitting by a stream or a lake or up in the mountains, whatever, I can look around and say, Jesus, you did all of this. I love it. The fact of the matter is that everything you see Jesus did that. Jesus did that. And he's the one that holds it all together. But even in saying that, I know that for some of you, you are struggling with perhaps a birth defect, some kind of handicap that you've developed over time, a degenerative disease, sickness that you've carried with you for so long, And you're saying, well, that's great that that Jesus made all those things to work the way that they work. Right now, my body's not working the way that it's supposed to work. It's not healing itself. It's It's not growing the way it's supposed to. It's not responding to sickness the way that it's supposed to, the way the doctors tell me it's supposed to work. In fact, doctors are telling me that my body is not doing what it's supposed to. And when we come face to face with those kinds of realities, there are two things that we have to remember. One is that was never how God intended for it to be. But instead, that's a consequence of the fall that things broke in this world and that there are things that are not the way that they're supposed to be. And that piece doesn't usually help too much if we're really being honest. That, That doesn't give us a lot of hope. Oh, yeah, great, sin, thanks. It's really encouraging. No, no. The second thing that we have to keep in mind is where the encouragement comes, is where the peace can come if we will let it. And that is that Jesus is still God. He is still sovereign. And he is making all things new. 
Because the third way that we see that Jesus is supreme over all things is that he is supreme over the new creation. See, the first creation happened in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 3, sin came into the picture and everything broke. And then in Genesis chapter 3, God made the promise that he was going to make everything right. And then through the biblical narrative throughout the Old Testament, God keeps pointing us to this one day, this one day that's coming where everything is going to be made right and things are going to be made new. And he, and he says in the, in the book of Ezekiel that he's going to put into us a heart of flesh and we will no longer have a heart of stone. And he, and he says these things about adopting us into his family and that we're going to be his people who, who were not his people. And that there's going to come this great and awesome day in which everything is going to be fixed, everything is going to be made right, And that brought us to the Gospels where Jesus is born, Jesus lives a perfect life, and Jesus dies for our sin and is raised from the dead. And then as we read more throughout the New Testament, we see that as a result of what Jesus did on the cross, God is making us new. And that we are now a new creation, a new person with a new heart. And that slowly God is redoing and redeeming all the things that sin broke. And there is going to come a day where everything will be the way it was always supposed to be. And our dwelling place will be with God and his dwelling will be with man and everything will be back to the way that God always intended it. Paul says in verse 18, with regard to Jesus being supreme over the new creation, he is the head of the body, the church. So you see, Jesus is supreme over the church. The body of believers, not just individual churches, but the universal church worldwide, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus as their Savior is a part of his body, the church. And he is over that body. Jesus is the one who allows it to grow. Jesus is the one who allows its roots to go deep. Jesus is the one who allows a church to be able to be effective in its community. And Jesus is the one who closes the doors when a church is no longer useful to him. You see, when a church starts doing their own thing, when a church starts getting away from the word of God, when a church starts, or when a church ceases to make great the name of Jesus, it's no one other than Jesus itself who causes that church's doors to close. In this church, in faith, church of Rio Rancho we will make the name of Jesus great because Jesus is the head of this church and if that day ever comes where we don't make his name great where we don't point people to him where we don't sing his praises where we don't declare his supremacy let him shut our doors too 
Jesus is the point of this church. Jesus is the point of the universal church. He is the head of his church. He will be made great in his church. He goes on and says he's the beginning. There's no church without Jesus. There's no life without Jesus. There's no forgiveness of sins without Jesus. Jesus was the beginning of all things when he, when he created them. Jesus is the beginning of redemption. Jesus is the beginning of all things. He goes on and he says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's a, that's a funny phrase. The firstborn from the dead. There's something very specific that that means. You see, Jesus was not the first one to be raised from the dead. Because there were people in, Old Te- in the Old Testament that were brought back to life, right? There were people throughout the Gospels during Jesus' earthly ministry, right? Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. People were brought back to life who had died. But they were brought back to life in their mortal, sinful, broken bodies. Lazarus died again. And he stayed dead that time. Jairus' daughter died again. And she stayed dead that time. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was the first to be resurrected with a resurrected body. A, a, a glorified body that, that he still possesses and will possess for all eternity. You see, he is the firstborn from the dead in that he was the first one to rise from the grave in the same way that we will rise from the grave when Jesus returns. Okay, the specifics about all that are an entire other sermon on its own. But suffice it to say, right now when you and I die, our body doesn't go to heaven. Our body goes in the ground. Our soul goes to heaven. And when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will be reunited with a resurrected body. But Jesus was the first. Because in all things, including the resurrection, he will be preeminent. He will be over all things. So he goes on and he says in verse 19, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's a, that phrase, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Because Jesus was not part man, part God. Jesus was not God who appeared to be a man. Jesus was not a man who could just do some really cool things. Jesus was fully man and fully God. The church fathers called it the hypostatic union. This this bonding of a human life and divinity in one man. The fullness of God and, and, and being a full man. It is a great mystery. 
Don't, don't expect me to be able to explain in, in perfect, coherent terms exactly how God made that happen. But the fact of the matter is Paul is telling us right here, hey, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus bodily on earth. And through him, God reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. See, God was, God was pleased to send his son to earth to die for our sins and that through that he would reconcile with us who were sinners and couldn't save ourselves. God was the one who did that. God was the one who, who chose to send Jesus. Jesus was the one who chose to, to leave his place in heaven and come to earth and live as a human being and be tempted in all the ways that we were tempted and yet remain without sin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. You notice we're not mentioned here at all. Paul has not said one thing about you and I in terms of God's plan to reconcile with us. He says nothing about us. Because God knew that we couldn't do anything for ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't make our situation better. He knew he had to act on our behalf and he did so. And he made peace with us though he could have in his perfect, holy, righteous justice destroyed us and said, forget it, I'm starting over. Instead, while we were far off, God reconciled to us. So we look at, at verses 15 through 20 and the supremacy of Christ in all things. So what? What does that mean? What do we do with that? Well, next, what we see in verses 21 through 23 is our response to Christ's supremacy, how we should live as a result of who Christ is. Because let's, let's be frank, if Christ is supreme, if he is who Scripture says he is, and he has done what Scripture says he has done, it should show up in our lives. It should show up in our lives. It should affect the way that we live. So the first thing that we see in our response to Christ's supremacy is that we, rec we recognize our sinful state. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Just look at those phrases. Alienated. Okay? Not, not just far off, not just far away, but, but purposefully separated from. We, we, we gave God the stiff arm and said, you stay over there. I'm going to do my thing. Alienated from God. Separated from God. Distancing ourselves from God. Hostile in mind. We were enemies of God. Of our own accord. Hostile in mind. Hostile to the truth. Hostile to things that are holy. 
and doing evil deeds. I don't think it takes very long for any of us to have very vivid images of the evil deeds we have done in our lives. And just a quick snapshot of those things and we can understand why why God would have a problem with our sin. You see, I don't get to be proud of the good deeds that I do. I don't get to be proud of my quote-unquote righteousness and all the, the ways that I'm a good person because there, there are a couple problems with that. First of all, when I make claims of how I'm a good person, well, compared to who? Because anyone can go find somebody to compare themselves to to make themselves look better. I can say, well, in comparison to this serial murder rapist over here, I'm a good person. But who's the standard? Who's the standard by which everyone is compared to? None none other than a holy, righteous, perfect God. Therefore, if he is the standard, all of a sudden my sin... My sinfulness really becomes clear and apparent that I am not as good of a person as I would like to think that I am. I'm sinful. I'm evil. And Paul makes very clear in Romans chapter 3 that if I was given the choice based on my own will and my own natural desires, if I was given the choice between God and sin and it was left totally up to my nature, my will, and my desires every single time, I would choose sin. Because deep down in the core of my being, I am wicked, I am sinful, I am evil, And I do not do what is right and good and righteous in the eyes of God. See, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64 that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. And the the language he uses in the Hebrew is, is very graphic and it's on purpose. It literally means all of our righteous deeds are like used menstrual garments before God. That is the literal meaning of the Hebrew in that verse. That that all the ways that we say, God, look at all these good things I did. And those things are stained by our sin. And God looks at them and says, this is disgusting. This is repulsive. This is not a gift. It's, it'd be like my son coming to me with one of his diapers that has been very well used, if you know what I mean, and giving it to me like, look, Dad, aren't you so impressed? And I would look at it and say, that's gross. I don't want that. That's not a gift. That's our best when it comes to the righteousness that we bring to the table. We have to get rid of this notion that we are inherently good people that just need a little help. No, we're wicked, evil sinners apart from Jesus. And only because of Jesus' redemptive work do we have anything. We need a Savior. But that's not just past tense. 
That's not just, oh yeah, before you knew Jesus, you needed to be saved from your sin. Even if you're following Jesus now, perhaps there's a sin in your life right now that you are saying, God, I need a Savior from this. I have tried to beat this on my own. I have tried to overcome this. I cannot be free from this. I can't do anything to change this. Please save me. What right now do you need to be saved from? You have to realize that there is no hope for you apart from Jesus himself. And when we recognize our sinful state, when we recognize the fact that we need a Savior, when we recognize that we can't do it on our own, we reconcile to God through Christ. Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. He has reconciled by his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God took action. Jesus came to earth. Jesus lived the life the perfect life you and I couldn't live. Jesus died the death you and I deserve to die. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered sin and death. And you and I get all the benefits. That's amazing. That's amazing. Jesus did it all. And you and I get to enjoy it all. You see, that's one of the reasons why I am a Christian. That is one of the reasons that I, I came to the place of committing my life to Jesus is because every other religion in the world says, do this, do this, do this, and God will love you. But if you do this and don't do this, God will hate you. It put, every other religion in the world puts the responsibility on your shoulders and my shoulders. That's failure waiting to happen. But Christianity, the gospel of Jesus says you can't do it. So God did it for you. And he welcomes you to receive that by faith. Oh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful truth that is. And it doesn't just stop there that we receive forgiveness through Jesus' death. No, you see how he says in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, something incredible took place that Martin Luther called the great exchange where Jesus took on himself your sins and my sins. He bore it in his own body as God poured out his wrath on Jesus, thereby punishing that sin. But Jesus did not just take from us our sin, but he imputed 
to us, gave to us, put over us his very righteousness and perfection. Pastor Mike talked about this last week. And we're reiterating this again this week. When God looks at you after you have put your faith in Jesus, he does not see your failures, your sins, your shortcomings. He sees the perfect, holy righteousness of his son. What an amazing truth. Why would I not want to be reconciled to a God like that? And lastly, after we reconcile to God through Christ, we respond with obedience. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If indeed you continue in the faith, that is a huge if. And when we read that word if at the beginning of verse 23, it, it likely gives each one of us pause in a moment of, wait a minute, if there's conditions on this, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, I can think of multiple times in my life where I was not stable and steadfast. And you might be able to think of times in your life, maybe even right this moment, where you could not describe your relationship with Christ as stable and steadfast. And yet Paul says, if... There's a very unique part of the Greek language when there are if-then statements where the structure of the sentence reveals to us the underlying tone, the underlying message. And in verse 23, that structure reveals that this is an assumed truth. That Paul is saying... He's reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. And while there may be times where you stumble, while there may be times where you struggle, while there may be times where you slide backwards a bit, don't forget, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are his. You are reconciled to him. You are a new creation and you will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't worry. You see, when someone truly gives their life to Jesus, when someone is a new creation, They won't be perfect in their actions, in their thoughts and their words, but the desire of their heart will be to obey. 
And though I may fall, though I may struggle, I still desire obedience. And when I sin, I repent, I grieve over my sin, and I seek to obey. Do you desire obedience? Not, not, are you perfect? Not, do you perfectly obey? Do you desire obedience? If you have been reconciled to God, you will remain stable and steadfast. See, people read this, and they see this word if, and they instantly think, oh no, I can lose my salvation. No, you can't. Listen to me. Listen to me right now. You cannot lose your salvation by something you did or didn't do because you didn't earn it for yourself in the first place. Jesus earned it for you. Did you hear what I just said? You cannot lose your salvation because you did not earn it in the first place. Jesus earned it for you, and Jesus can't lose you. You see, Christmas is not just something we celebrate on December 25th. We live in the reality of Christmas daily because we live in the reality that God became flesh and dwelt among us and lived the life that we couldn't live to pay the penalty for our sin as he died on the cross that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God for all eternity. We live in the reality that Christ is supreme over all things. And our life should be a response to his supremacy. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you are supreme. You are God. You are King. You did come to earth. You did live a life as a man and died a death as a man, but you rose from the grave and you ascended to heaven as king. Lord, you are seated on the throne. May we never diminish who you are down to just a man but that we would keep in mind that you are supreme over all. You are king over all. And our lives now should be a response to that truth. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for us. Thank you that you rose from the grave. But most importantly, Lord, thank you that you came for us. Because Lord, if you never came we would never know salvation. So thank you, Lord. Be glorified now as we live our lives in response to you. Amen.